Amen. You can be seated. Well, as I said, I am uh, glad that you're here this morning. I hope that um, whatever food coma you found yourself in on Thursday afternoon or evening has worn off. I hope that you have not yet experienced any buyer's remorse over whatever you purchased on Friday or Saturday. Um, And I hope that you have a Bible with you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 this morning. I'll let you go ahead and find that. Uh, We'll start in verse 39 here in just a couple of moments. Some of you are going to say, what happened to Philippians? And I'll tell you, it's still there. Um, We're going to come back to the book of Philippians, which we've been studying for several months Um, Sometime early in the new year, Lord willing, but we're going to take these four weeks of Advent and spend some time in Luke chapters 1 and 2. And so that's where you need to be. That's where we're going to be hanging out this morning. Um, I should add, uh, this is family worship weekend here at Life Church. Um, The 9 a.m. service, I'm pretty sure the median age of the service was under the age of 18. Um, That looks a little bit less the case here in the 11 a.m. service, and that's great. Uh, But if you have a child in your lap or in the seat next to you, parents, we just want you to know that we love them and we love you and their wiggles will bother you far more than they bother me or any of us. And so we're a family and families are sometimes loud and it's okay if your family is loud today. We're glad that you're here with us. Um, This is the first Sunday of the season that Christians typically call and celebrate as Advent. And uh, I'm not sure that there has ever been a year when I personally have needed to celebrate Advent as much as I need to celebrate it this year. Perhaps that's true for you, too. Advent is all about looking in two directions at the same time, right? It's all about setting your eyes backward on the first coming of Jesus when he came as a helpless powerless, frail little baby born in a manger in that little town of Bethlehem. And at the same time, it's all about looking ahead to the second coming of Jesus when he will come again, not as a powerless, helpless, frail little baby, but as a king with fire in his eyes and a flaming sword of eternal justice, Revelation 19 says. Right, so Advent, it's about looking in in both of those directions at once. It's like, you know, the young mom in a minivan who somehow manages to keep her eyes on the road in front of her and her eyes on her children behind her at the very same time. Or it's like um, a shortstop in baseball who can field the ground ball and look the runner back to second while at the same time staring down the first baseman and managing to throw correctly to him, right? That, that's what Advent is like. It's like looking in those two directions at the same time, backward to Christ's first coming forward to his second coming. And the reason I say that I feel like I need Advent more this year than any other year of my life is because really in the year 2020, we've all been looking in two directions at once. We've all been looking backward at the luxuries and liberties that COVID-19 has taken from our hands. And we've all been looking forward to the day when we might have those luxuries and liberties again. We've all been looking forward to the day when there's some sense of normalcy again to our lives. And we aren't necessarily fearful of, you know, whatever is going to happen if we don't social distance correctly or, you know, whatever. Maybe we're not fearful of those things. We're just tired of those things. But, but all of us, we have this sense of looking back at how life used to be. And looking forward to the way that life will one day be again, Lord willing. 
And so all of us, we've been in the habit of, of looking in those two directions. But one of the things that Advent communicates to us is that all of the things that we long for in this life, all of the things that we long for in this world are on some level in the end misplaced longings. Right? We yearn for things that don't ultimately satisfy us. We long for things that can't actually fill us up and bring us peace and sustain joy in our lives. And so Advent always, historically, every year is, is a reminder that the true longings of our hearts won't be satisfied until Christ comes again. It's a longing for Christ. Everything that we yearn for, everything that we desire is in some way or another in this life truly a longing for what we will only experience when Jesus comes again. And so my prayer for myself this Advent and for you as well is that in this season we would learn to to condition our hearts. We would learn to, to tune our hearts to the fact that only God can satisfy the longings of our hearts. That as we look backward at the past at Christ, and as we look forward to the coming of Christ again in the future, that we will be able to receive and to teach ourselves the truth that it is Jesus and only Jesus who can, who can fill the longings that we really feel. Right? It's not a return to normal that's going to bring us joy. It's the return of God's Son that will bring us joy. It's not a return to the way things used to be that's going to fill us up. It's going to be a return to the way things one day will be and the way they always ought to have been before sin corrupted the world. And so our longings, they're longings for when Christ returns and brings our salvation to a perfect consummation. As we come under God's word this morning and this season of Advent, may we simply pray that God would tune our hearts to long for him most of all. Let's pray that now before we study Luke chapter 1 this morning. God, I'm grateful for your word, which above all else reveals the glory of Jesus to us. May we learn to believe that only the glory of Jesus can truly satisfy us. And in every space, Father, where we're tempted to believe something else, in every situation where we're tempted to believe that what we really need is just this or that, more of that, less of this, whatever change of circumstance, God, may we come to see and believe that what we truly need is Jesus. And then may you help us to, to fix our eyes on him beholding his glory and his incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection and longing for a truer glimpse of glory which we will receive when he comes again. Work these things in us even now, God, as we study these words. Help us to, to understand your word and to live in light of it. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the Gospel of Luke opens with two unexpected pregnancies. The first unexpected pregnancy is the pregnancy of Elizabeth. And it's unexpected because Elizabeth is barren, so she was never able to have children. And in addition to that, she is now very old, so well beyond childbearing years. But the angel Gabriel visits Elizabeth's husband, Zachariah, while he's serving in the temple and promises that a child will be born to Zachariah and Elizabeth. That child is John the Baptist, the one whose ministry, whose job was to proclaim the coming of Messiah. The second unexpected pregnancy is the pregnancy of Mary, of course. And it's unexpected, not because she is old and barren, but because she is young and unwed and a virgin. Again, the angel Gabriel comes to her and promises her that a child will be born to her. But Gabriel adds that this child will be the Messiah. He says in Luke 1, 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel is not mincing words. He is saying very clearly and directly that the child in Mary's womb will be Messiah, the promised king that God would send to his people to bring peace and justice forever, the king who would sit on King David's throne forever and ever and ever. Gabriel is saying, this is that child. He is coming. What we see today is what happens when Mary receives that news and immediately rushes to meet her cousin Elizabeth. So pregnant Mary is on her way to visit pregnant Elizabeth in Luke 1, starting in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Just notice right away Mary's haste. The news she has heard from Gabriel is so good that she is eager to share it, maybe even desperate to share it. And so she travels to share it with her older, wiser cousin, Elizabeth, somebody who can share in the burden of this news. But what we learn quickly is that Mary never has the opportunity to share this news because as soon as she arrives at Elizabeth's house, Something happens. Keep reading. Verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, not the news of Mary, simply Mary saying, hello. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. I want you to think just for a minute about John's reaction to Mary and Jesus and then Elizabeth's reaction to Mary and Jesus. Let's start with John. John leaps in his mother's womb, even before 
Jesus is born, even before he is born, he leaps in his mother's womb, acknowledging the presence of Messiah in his midst. Now, John the Baptist's ministry, it's a ministry of preparing the way for Christ and pointing to Christ. But what we notice is that right here, it's begun, right? Three months before John himself is even born, his prophetic work has started. And as far as I am aware... John is the only prophet to ever do prophetic ministry while still a fetus. He's the only prophet to ever use a womb for a pulpit to declare his message. But that's exactly what he does when Jesus and Mary enter his presence. He leaps for joy because of the presence of Messiah in his midst. But notice Elizabeth's response as well. I mean, it's marked by a couple things. It's marked by a humble submission to Christ, even though Christ is still in Mary's womb, right? She says in verse 43, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She's not calling baby Jesus her Lord. She's calling fetus Jesus her Lord. Such is her humble submission to Christ. She recognizes his lordship before he's even born. But then she also recognizes That God is doing what he said he was going to do. He's fulfilling his promises and keeping his plan. Right? She says in verse 42, Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. This is the theme of our passage today, that there's blessing that's come because Jesus has come. So she says, Mary, you're blessed, and Jesus, you're blessed too. But then she adds in verse 45, And blessed is she, now talking about Mary again, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. In other words, Elizabeth, she trusts that God is at work in these things. Her eyes, opened by the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth does not hesitate to believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to his people. Her eyes, opened by the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth does not hesitate to believe that God is going to do what he said he would do. Her eyes opened by the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth celebrates the coming of Messiah into her home. And as we think about this story just at its very beginning this morning, brothers and sisters, what I simply want to lay before you is that this is how everyone should respond to the coming of Jesus into their midst. John leaps for joy. Elizabeth celebrates in humble submission and faithful trust. And every person who encounters Jesus Christ should respond in exactly the same way. When Jesus comes to us, because Jesus has come for us, our response, it should be joy. We should leap as John left in his mother's womb. And we should respond in submission and in trust. This is what it looks like to rightly understand and encounter Jesus Christ. I mean, we have even more reason than did John or Elizabeth to celebrate 
and to respond in joy. Elizabeth and John, they were responding to merely the conception of Jesus. Today, we can respond not only to Jesus' conception, but his birth and his perfect life and his perfect sacrificial substitutionary death and his resurrection from the grave three days later and his ascension to glory 40 days after that. We don't celebrate merely a coming king. We celebrate a risen, resurrected, ascended king. And we should respond to him with joy and with trust as we see John and Elizabeth celebrating to him, responding to him in celebration here. This is how we should respond to the good news of Christ's first coming and the promise of his second coming. But our focus this morning, it isn't on John's response or Elizabeth's response. What I'm really interested in diving into today is Mary's response to these things. And as we keep reading in Luke 1, we see that Mary's response is a song. She responds to the arrival of Jesus in singing. And actually, this is the first of four songs that are recorded in the narratives surrounding the birth of Jesus in Luke 1 and 2. This week, we're looking at Mary's song, Next week, we're going to look at, this is just what we're going to focus on this Advent season. Next week, we'll look at Zechariah's song that he sings in response to the arrival of John the Baptist. The third week of Advent, we'll look at the song that the angel choir sings in that little town of Bethlehem as, as Jesus comes. And then the fourth week of Advent, we'll look at the song of a man named Simeon who responds to the coming of Christ when his parents present him in the temple. But today, we're going to focus on Mary's song and Mary's response to the arrival of Jesus in her womb. A couple things about this song before we read it even. Um, Number one, some biblical scholars actually struggle to believe that Mary could possibly have written this song. They struggle to believe it because this song is so poetic in its quality, and so robust in its theology. Basically, their thought is that there's no way like an uneducated peasant girl who's probably illiterate could possibly have written a song like this. And while there's some sense to that, what that ignores is the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. Right? Christians believe that the Holy Spirit of God has inspired every one of God's words, and of course the Holy Spirit is capable of both poetry and theology. And so when Mary sings this song, these are her words, but they're also the Holy Spirit's words inspiring her words. So I don't think that concern is really particularly valid. Here's the second thing we should just note about this song. Mary's song here, it is profoundly biblical. What I mean when I say that is that there are 10 verses here in every line of this song there is a direct quotation of or allusion to some portion of the Old Testament. So in these 10 verses of Mary's song, she's going to quote from or allude to Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel, she most heavily relies on 1 Samuel 2, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, Micah, and Zephaniah, all 11, I got them. 
this song, it's profoundly biblical, right? One pastor has said, it's like Mary tried to put the whole Old Testament into this song that she sings in response to Jesus' coming. And I think that's significant because what we see is that Mary, like, Scripture's just flowing out of her, right? right? She considers this good news that Jesus has come, and her response is a scriptural response, a biblical response. She's formed by the Bible, and the Bible is what just comes out of her as she considers this news. All right, let's look at this song together. Let me read it for us. Now we're in Luke 1, 46, reading through verse 56. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Traditionally, this song is called the Magnificat because uh, the first word of it in Latin is Magnificat. Latin was the language of the church for a thousand years or more. My soul magnifies the Lord, Mary said, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers and to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, Elizabeth, about three months, and then returned to her home, Luke adds. As we think about this beautiful and rich song, really I just want to think about two questions that we need to answer. There's a what question and a why question. The what question is, what is happening in Mary's heart that has led her to say these things or sing these things? Right? What is Mary doing, essentially? The second question is, why are those things happening in Mary's heart? Why is she doing this? And so, what and then why? What's happening? Well, in verse 46 and verse 47, Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And then she adds, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And I want you to, to hear those two verbs there, right? Magnifies and rejoices because those are two separate but critically linked pieces of what is happening in Mary as she says these things. But I think there is a life-changing reality in this Christmas lyric because what we see is that Mary understands the relationship between worship and joy. She says, my soul, it, it magnifies the Lord. And that's a statement of worship. Mary, she has considered the Lord's character and his compassion to her. She has considered the Lord's providence and his purposes. She has considered the Lord's works and his ways. And she is responding to those things by worshiping him. She is magnifying him as she should. But she worships God 
by rejoicing in God. She makes God's character and compassion and his providence and his purposes and his works and his ways. She makes who God is and what God has done for her the very foundation of her joy in life. And so she magnifies the Lord precisely because she rejoices in the Lord. In other words, Mary understands that there is this unbreakable connection between worship and joy. She knows that what we worship is what we rejoice in, and what we rejoice in is what we worship. I mean, I hope you know that you can't truly magnify something without rejoicing in it. You can't honor something without rejoicing in it. You can't worship something without rejoicing in it. I mean, I can like, imagine that like, I, I beat the crowds on Black Friday. I was up at just the crack of dawn, hypothetically. I was, just, just to be clear, I was absolutely in my bed on, Good Fr- on Black Friday, but um, I was not out shopping. But hypothetically, imagine that I, that I beat the crowds on Black Friday, and I was you know, first in line so that I could, could get the best possible deal on the gift that my wife really wanted for Christmas. You know, let's say I knew the thing that Kristen really wanted, but that she would never admit that she wanted. Right? Let's say I had picked that thing out, and I knew that there was this perfect deal on it, and so I, I beat the crowds to get there. I, you know, I fought the, the socially distanced lines at you know, some godforsaken sore at like 4 o'clock in the morning or whatever time that thing starts. Again, I'm not there. I'm in my bed. But, but let's imagine that I've done that, and I've picked out the perfect gift, and I've paid for the perfect gift, and I, and I wrap it you know, nicely, not the way I normally wrap presents, but like maybe I pay somebody else to do it so that it looks presentable like a real present and not something that I just threw in a sack. Um, but like I wrap it nicely and I, let's say I save it for last on Christmas morning when, when Kristen isn't expecting anything more from me and I pull it out and I, and I give it to her. Like what I want you to know is that Kristen would not be honored by that in any way if my heart was dominated by bitterness or duty or obligation in that process, right? If I shopped for that, and the whole time I was like, man, I can't believe I'm here. This is terrible. I can't believe I'm doing this for my wife. If I, if I slid my credit card through the machine, and the whole time I'm thinking, man, I, this isn't worth it. Like, I can't believe I'm spending this money on this gift. If I was grumbling and complaining the whole time, like, Kristen wouldn't be honored by that. Kristen is only honored by that gift If the whole time that I'm shopping for it and paying for it and giving it to her, I'm rejoicing in and delighting in the woman the Lord has allowed me to walk through life with. Because we can't truly magnify something without also rejoicing in that something. In the same way, you can walk through our doors on Sunday morning and you can sing songs and and pray prayers and put up with me for 40 minutes and and whatever else you're going to do on a Sunday morning while you're here in this space. You can do all of those things, but if you're doing them out of a sense of obligation or drudgery or duty, friends, the Lord is not honored by a lick of that. And you can walk through your whole life and do the things that Christians do. You can serve him. You can give your finances to him. You can be a part of his people. But if those things are not driven by an overwhelming joy in what Christ has done for you and in who Jesus is for you, then none of those things are rightly called worship. Worship is only worship when it is driven and shaped by rejoicing because there is an inseparable connection between what we worship 
and what we rejoice in. If you turn that the other way, what we rejoice in reveals what we really worship. What we delight in is a window into our souls showing us what matters most to us. So, if your pulse quickens a little bit at the thought of that Black Friday deal, or if you jump out of your seat because of that last-minute touchdown, or if you can't take your eyes off of the, the thought of that, that new granite countertop, but I mean, these things are windows into our souls, showing us what we really worship. What we delight in is what we worship. And this is what Mary understands. She's thinking about the Lord, his goodness, his purposes in her life. And she unites her worship and her joy. Do you? Do we? Do we worship God because we rejoice in who God is and what he's done for us? Do we worship him as an overflow of our joy in Christ? I pray that we do. That's the what. That's what is happening in Mary's heart. Now let's talk about why that is happening. I spent a lot of time in this song over the last seven days, and as I've thought about and meditated on these things, um, there are many numbers of reasons why Mary is moved to unite her joy and her worship here. There are many reasons why her soul magnifies the Lord and rejoices in God, her Savior. But let me point us to six of those reasons this morning. I won't spend too long on any one of them, but let's just consider why Mary magnifies the Lord together. First, she magnifies the Lord because God favors the humble and weak rather than the strong and the proud. I think you can notice that right away in verse 48. She says, my soul magnifies, my spirit rejoices. Four, verse 48, he, God, has looked on the humble estate of his servant. What that means is that Mary was very aware that her personal resume was not particularly impressive. Right? She was a poor peasant girl from a backwater part of the Roman Empire, this tiny town that nobody had heard of or cared about. There was nothing about Mary that was particularly impre- impressive. But in spite of her lowly position and her humble estate, God favored her and made her the mother of our Lord. Why does he do that? Well, later, Mary goes on to celebrate. This is simply how God works. Look at verses 51 and 52. She says, he, God, has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. In other words, Mary, she acknowledges that this is just how God works in the world, right? He isn't looking for the strongest, most capable, best-looking people to be on his team, right? He's not looking for the kind of people who seem to have life figured out. He's not looking for the kind of people that everybody else in the world naturally looks up to. No, God is looking for people who are humble and broken 
and lowly. He's look, those are the kinds of people that, that God exalts. People who recognize their limits, their insufficiencies, their need for God's grace. People who recognize that they're not that impressive. You remember back in grade school, whenever like it would be recess time and everybody would go outside and, and a game of like kickball or something like that would break out and, and just naturally like the kids on the field would, would pick sides for that kickball game. And so what that means is that like the two tallest, strongest, fastest kids on the playground, they would be chosen as team captains, right? And then each captain would alternate turns picking the players for their team. And of course, those team captains would start with the other tall, strong, fast kids on the field, right? Nobody would pick the runty kid with two left kids, two left feet first, right? You'd pick the other strong, fast, capable kids on the field, and then only when you had to would you pick the kids like me who, you know, are completely uncoordinated and can't hit a curveball to save their life or, or whatever. Now, a couple things. First of all, if in life the Lord has blessed you with the fact that you were one of those tall, strong, fast kids that everybody picked first. Like, I just want you to know that the rest of us hate you. Maybe, maybe we love you now, but we hated you when we were in grade school. And, and it's just worth, I have the microphone, and nobody can take that from me. And so I want you to know that we hated you then and are struggling to love you now. But, but my point is that I don't know where you go with this. Uh, my point is that um, when, when God's choosing sides for his team, he does not look for the tall, fast, strong, athletic kids. Right? He prefers the people who would be chosen last every time. He prefers people who are humble and lowly of estate. Because when he picks and uses those kinds of people, when great things happen, he rightly gets all of the glory. And that's what Mary celebrates. She celebrates the fact that God doesn't pick the athletic kids, but that he picks people like her. He humbles the proud and exalts the lowly. Mary rightly says that's a reason to praise God. And I hope you realize today that that's a reason to praise God because even if you were that tall, fast, strong, athletic kid in grade school, like spiritually speaking, that doesn't describe any of us today. Spiritually speaking, there's not one of us who is particularly impressive. Spiritually speaking, there is not one of us who has our act together. Spiritually speaking, all of us are the uncoordinated, unathletic, weak kid on the playground. Now, we might pretend otherwise, and we might from time to time by our spiritual performance persuade other people otherwise, but deep in our hearts we know that we are of low estate just like Mary was, and so we should praise God for the fact that he chooses and works in the lives of those who are humble and of low estate as well the first reason why Mary praises God. The second reason, she praises God because he is both holy and mighty. Look at verse 49, she says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So Mary, she holds up in the same breath the holiness of God and the strength of God. 
the holiness of God, that means God is absolutely pure and good in all that he does. The strength of God, that means that God has complete power over all things that he has created. And what's incredible is the fact that Mary holds those things together and rightly recognizes that God is both holy and mighty at the same time. And the fact that he is should move us to praise him. I mean, if God was holy but not mighty, he would be a weak and anemic being, right? If he, if he wanted good things for his people but didn't have the strength or the power to do anything about our problems and our struggles and our sin, he would not be a God worth worshiping. But at the same time, if he were mighty but not holy, he could do whatever he wanted, but he wouldn't be constrained by any kind of moral goodness. And so he would be a wildly unpredictable God who would wake up on the wrong side of the bed someday and, you know, just crush whole continents worth of people. Right? The fact that God is holy and mighty at the same time, that's critical. It's why he is worthy of our praise. It's critical to why he is worthy of our worship. He can do whatever he pleases because he's mighty, but because he's holy, he will only do what is good and what brings him glory. Now, I know that when we are facing trials or when we, we endure seasons where it seems like the Lord is not hearing or answering our prayers, I know in those seasons we will be tempted to doubt that God is holy and mighty. We'll wonder, does he really want good things for us? Is he really holy? Or we'll wonder, is he really able to do anything about my problems? Is he really powerful? And in those moments, I just point you to the miraculous conception of baby Jesus in Mary's womb. Mary herself recognizes that God can only do that if he is holy and mighty. He is. He will always do what is good for his people, and he will always be able to do whatever he purposes. Mary praises God for this, and we should too. Thirdly, she praises God because he shows mercy to those who fear him. She says in verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Friends, while God in his absolute and perfect holiness is always against sin, he is not always against sinners. Sinners who fear him, who recognize their sinfulness and their need for a savior. God is for us and not against us. And he has mercy for us. And notice, Mary says that mercy endures from generation to generation. In other words, God's not dealing with a limited, finite amount of mercy that one day he's going to run out of. He has mercy that is unending. It flows from his heart unendingly and unwaveringly. His mercy is like a river that never stops flowing. It's like a well that never runs dry. Which means that we cannot outsin God's great mercy. And there will always be mercy for us when we come to him in our sin. We should praise him for this as Mary does. Mary praises him fourthly because God cares For those who are in need, in verse 53, she says, God has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. What she means is that God is not stingy, but instead he delights to meet the needs of his people. Now, this does not mean that the prosperity gospel is true. This does not mean that God is like a genie in a bottle who just exists to give you the desires of your heart whenever you rub him the right way. 
It simply means that God will always respond to our needs. Sometimes he'll respond to our needs by refining our desires. Sometimes he will respond to our needs by calling us to wait on him so that we learn that he is what we really need and really desire. But in the end, God is not distant or silent when we are in need. He answers every single prayer. He meets every true need. And so as you sit here today, whatever your needs are, you can praise God because you know that he knows those needs and cares about those needs and he fills the hungry with good things. Fifthly, Mary praises God because he keeps his promises to his people. In verses 54 and 55, she says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What Mary is celebrating here is the fundamental faithfulness of God. She's looking back in history to Abraham and to the promise that God made to Abraham that one day someone from Abraham's family would bless all the peoples of the earth. And she's looking back to, to David, to King David, and the fact that David, as a descendant of Abraham, sat on the throne of Israel and God promised to him that one day one of his descendants would reign and rule in peace forever and ever and ever. And she's recognizing that this baby in her womb is the fulfillment of those promises. She's saying, just as God spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, he's helped his servant. He's remembered his mercy. In other words... Mary just recognizes that God keeps his promises. And we recognize that too and praise him for that as well. Our God is faithful to his word. He always does what he has promised to do. He's promised to redeem his people from their sin. He will do it. He's promised to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will do it. He's promised to one day return and to restore everything that is broken and he will do it. He has promised to wipe every tear from every eye and he will one day do it. He's promised to work all things together for our good and for his glory and he will do it. Because he is a God who always, always, always keeps his promises. The sixth and last reason we'll consider why Mary praises God. Because of God's grace, all generations shall call her and us blessed. That's the theme of the passage. I said it, right? Elizabeth, she celebrates the fact that Mary's blessed and Jesus is blessed. And Mary recognizes that herself in verse 48. She says, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. In other words, Mary recognizes the special place that she has received in human history. Not because she had her act together, not because she was particularly good or qualified, but simply because of God's grace. Mary recognizes that from this moment forward, people will recognize that she is blessed. History will have its eyes on her. Brothers and sisters, if we are truly Christians today, If Jesus is truly born in us, the Holy Spirit has truly made us regenerate, if we've truly repented of our sin and turned to Christ and his gospel in faith, then we too will be called blessed far beyond earth's 
history. Paul tells the Ephesian Christians in Ephesians 1 that they've received every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And then he teases those blessings out. He says, because of Christ, you've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the earth. You've been blessed because God has made you holy and blameless in his sight. You've been blessed because he predestined you in love for adoption as his sons and his daughters. You've been blessed because you've been redeemed and forgiven by the blood of Christ. You've been blessed because you've received an imperishable and undefiled and unfading inheritance in heaven. And you've been blessed because the Holy Spirit, God's very presence, his very person, is living in you to guarantee you the blessing that is still to come. Friends, if you are in Christ, like Mary, one day all generations will call you blessed. And like Mary, that should move you to praise God. It should move all of us to praise God. And so let our souls magnify the Lord. Let our souls delight and rejoice in the God who is our Savior. Pray with me. God, we ask you to cultivate in us that sense of joy and delight because of who you are and what you have done for us. We pray that we would recognize that you are what we really long for in all things. What we long for is not more of what we already have in this life. What we long for is not really a change in circumstance. What we long for is not really a new relationship or a different relationship. What we long for is not more stuff or less stuff, more challenges or fewer challenges. What we long for, Jesus, it is you. It is nothing but you. Help us to delight and to magnify you in our hearts as we consider and reflect on and recognize who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you for coming for us, Jesus. You're what we long for, but you didn't leave us to to figure out where you are. You didn't leave us to, to come find you. You came for us. You were with us, Emmanuel. That is the reason why we praise you today. In Christ's name we pray, amen.